Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool show for you today. One of the most creative people in the world, I think, the one and only Zach Zucker from Stamptown Comedy coming at you momentarily. And before I tell you about Zach, I want to tell you about this. I want to tell you about NotRealArt.com. I want to tell you about all the good, healthy stuff we got for you there at NotRealArt.com. And I want you to go check it out. Our 2024 grant is there. You can read about that. Please check out the remote series by Badir McCleary, available exclusively at NotRealArt.com, an incredible video series exploring the role of public art in our country and around the world. So be sure to check that out. And of course, you know, when you go to notrealart.com, you're going to discover amazing artists and art that you wouldn't have discovered otherwise, we think. So please go and check us out. A lot of good, healthy stuff for you. And if you're an artist, check out the Not Real Art School. We've got a lot of Really cool, free educational videos there in the Not Real Art School. Just to give us your email address and you will gain access to hours worth of content for free. So please be sure to check that out. Last but not least, check out our online exhibitions, First Fridays. A lot of amazing artists there and we drop new exhibitions every month. So please check out our First Fridays exhibitions. Okay, people. We've got the one and only Zach Zucker in the house. Have you heard of Stamptown Comedy? Well, I'm telling you what. If you haven't heard of Stamptown, you better get busy. You better get with it because Stamptown is one of the most hilarious events I've been to in a while. It's a comedy show, to be clear, but it's like a variety show structure. And Zach Zucker is the host. He is a genius. I just love this guy. So talented, so funny, so on it, so quick. And as I got to know him, I realized his roots are actually in athletics. He was an athlete (laughs) and played at a high level and was quite good. And I think it sort of speaks to his athleticism on stage and his quick wit. His intellect is just super rapid fire. One of the funniest guys I've seen and one of the funniest shows I've seen in a long time. Zach Zucker is an award-winning clown and producer who tours his original comedy shows worldwide. He's a graduate of a famous clown school in France. I'm going to butcher the name. Nicole Philippe Gaulier. 
think that might be it. I'm going to leave it there because my French sucks. My English sucks. I love my friend. But he is also one half of the Norwegian-American comedy duo, Zach and Vigo, the alter ego of New York's greatest comedian, Jack Tucker, and the creator of independent music and comedy label Stamptown, as I mentioned. The first international comedian at the only comedy venue in Mumbai, India, that comedy club. He has performed at Just for Laughs, Glastonbury, Soho Theater, Edinburgh Fringe, Comedy Central, Melbourne International, Comedy Festival, Union Hall, New York Comedy Festival. He's taught workshops at the Groundlings, UCB, Second City, Lyric Hyperion, Clown Gym, Free Association, Bristol University, Summit LA. I mean, I could go on. Zach Tucker is one of my new favorite people in the world. I just so love meeting him and talking to him. The Stamptown show is amazing, and you've got to go check it out when you can. So I just love talking to Zach. I thought we talked for like 45 minutes or so. I think we ended up talking for like an hour and a half. I feel like I made a new friend, and I can't wait to see what he does moving forward. He's on the road right now. I think he's in Australia. But when he was in L.A. a few weeks ago, we sat down for a great conversation, which you're going to hear right now. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Zach Zucker. Zach Zucker of Stamptown fame. Welcome to Not Real Art. Oh, man. What an absolute pleasure to be here. Man, I tell you what, I've been so excited about having you on because you made me laugh so much. And I, the other night when we saw the show and I just, for me, some people like love to cry the whole, you know, comedy, drama. My wife, she loves a good drama. She wants to cry. I'm like, why would you want to cry when you can laugh? <laughs> you know? I'd rather cry from laughter yes. than cry from cry. Yes. And yeah. I would love to make people cry, <laughs> but, you know, just kind of help them get those tears out uh, the happy way, kind of squeeze them out through that fun filter. <laughs> if I don't think that's anything anyone's ever said before, but I'm going to go on record as the first person to call laughing from crying out the fun filter. Well, I think you hold the record for saying a lot of things that people have never said before, my friend. I would deny those allegations straight off the bat. I did not say those things. They are reporting really rude and nasty things I said. Unless you find them funny, then I said all of those things. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Except none of the blame, all the credit. This is what exactly. we're talking about. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page. I guess that's really kind of the end of the interview. So yeah. it's been great chatting with you. Thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, man, I mean, you know, like I'm just a curious guy. I mean, you know, like my favorite people in the world have always been artists. I mean, I come from a musical family. You know, we weren't really into the performing arts per se or the visual arts per se or whatever. But, you know, coming up, I grew up outside Chicago, but, you know, lived in Chicago for a long time. Obviously, great comedy tradition in Chicago, right, with Second City and all this, but in theater and visual arts and all that. But, you know, so artists are always my favorite people. So when I meet somebody or get the chance to see somebody in their element that makes me as happy as you made me when we saw Stamptown. I said, man, I said, I, w- I just want to talk to this dude and hear his story because clearly you have a special gift, you know, but also it's nature versus nurture, right? So like, sure, you know, some of it's hardwired, some of it's just in you and it's got to come out. But I'm guessing, you know, I'm wondering about your journey coming to this place, you know, and quite frankly, what kind of 
environment, you were able to nurture your talents. And by the way, where did you get the funny? Did it come from grandma? Did it come from dad? Take us back to the origins of Zach Zucker. <laughs> wow, we're getting the full Zucker treatment. Yes, the full so, yeah, Zucker. I mean, we're going full Zucker mode right now. <laughs> I always love the question and I have fun answering because I think it always changes like the when did you know or did you always know type thing. And I think you can really frame it as like, of course, the signs were always there. Like I loved, you know, growing up, I think of all the shows that I watched and like I grew up watching things like Jackass and The Ali G Show and South Park and Whose Line Is It Anyway? And, you know, shows like MXC, which were these like fake dubbed over reality show or game shows with like just really funny commentary and really stupid physical comedy, you know? And I could say as well, like the way that I just was as a person, this may come as a surprise, but I love to be the center of attention. I love to talk. I love to be around people. I love to host and I love to put on a night. And I know this sounds like classic, like wanky, like, oh, I don't do it for me. I do it for other people. But like, I hate having my own party, but I love throwing a party for someone else. And I feel like I've been able to kind of put that mentality into the shows. But as far as like, did I know I would get into this? You know, I played sports my whole life. I never really got into performing until my junior year in high school where I had to take a fine arts credit. And I heard that acting was easy <laughs> and, and it was fun. <laughs> and some of the other people who played sports. Yeah. Uh, well, oh yeah. It's like, you kind of just like, you know, fuck around and it's an easy A and it'll help your GPA. And me being the student I was where like, if I wanted to apply myself, I was good. But most of the time I was challenging authority for no good reason other than to be like, mm, I think you're full of shit. It was really nice for me. And, you know, coming from this more competitive sports background, I really responded when one of my teachers, this was um, the, the late Tim Conway, who was my first acting teacher. He was like, hey, man, I know you're like a cool athlete or whatever, but there's a lot of really talented individuals in this class. So if you're going to fuck around, you can get out right now. And I was like, all right, let me commit my life to this. And I started, you know, I did it my whole junior year. I didn't really think much of it. And then my senior year came around and I still needed some more credits. So I was like, all right, let's try this acting one more time. And I started to like it a bit more. And then someone suggested to me that I maybe go see some comedy because I obviously had comedic interests. And I remember going down to Second City when I was 17 years old back in 2010. Even though I am only 19 years old now in 2023, don't do the math. I am young. I am ready to be a star in Hollywood. But I saw this show called Spoiler Alert, Everybody Dies. And Tim Robinson was in it, and Sam Richardson, and Holly Laurent, and Katie Rich, Timothy Edward Mason, just Edward Blackman, like some of the most incredible performances I've ever seen in my life. And I signed up for teen improv class that night. And while I was in the middle of my basketball season, I was going to Second City on Sunday nights and Sunday afternoons, and I'd spend like five, six hours there just taking class. and. By the time baseball season rolled around and I was, you know, like the captain of my team my senior year and I was like getting like I, I was never going to go, but I got like a letter from Harvard to play baseball or like a letter of interest to be like, hey, come visit. Let's talk about this. But like I really only got that letter because I cheated on my ACT and I got a really good score, but I've got good eyes and I know how to game the system. So I copied off my friend next to me. <laughs> uh, so Joey Warsh, if you're listening to this, thank you for letting me copy your entire test. Shout out I know Joey. I framed it like I also studied and I was working on it with you. No, no, no. But thank you, Joey. Thank you, Joey. Thank you to the Warsh family. But yeah, I ended up quitting my senior year to pursue acting, whatever that means. You know, I didn't end up really going to college. I just moved out to California when I was 18 years old. I moved out to LA. And my plan that I convinced my parents with was that I would go to Santa Monica College for 
you know, one or two years, transfer to USC or UCLA. That seemed like the most logical path I could convince them to let me go and do this. But in the back of my head, the whole time I knew like, you know, I'm not, this isn't for me. I want to go <laughs> pursue this thing that I have no skill or experience or background in. And I'm going to move to the city where I know zero people and work in an industry that is famously extremely difficult and soul crushing. And I just went for it. And I can kind of trace every single moment back to, it was seeing Tim Robinson, taking the class, going to California. I eventually started taking my own acting classes where I would like take scene study classes on Wednesdays and Saturdays. I would take dance class and music class and voice lessons. This is an embarrassing one. I don't tell many people this. I used to street perform on the Santa Monica Promenade. I was guitar guy. Yes. Wow. (laughs) You were guitar guy. Yeah, fully. (laughs) I was guitar guy. And it's like all the songs you think I would be playing. When I tell you I was playing them, I played them worse than nobody's ever played them before, you know? (laughs) But I, I did my best. I did my best and I didn't make much money. I always made back my permit. The permits were like 75 bucks, but I maybe made like a couple hundred bucks every year. I only did it a few times. But yeah, then I started, I found my way towards this. I found this acting school that was kind of like a wanky professional acting program. I don't need to, you know, shit on them or give them any more props, but I went to a a boring school. And then in the middle of all that, I started interning at the UCB theater and I was working there Saturday nights, just cleaning the toilets for free classes because I was so inspired by this. And One day, our night manager, this wonderful woman named Gilly, Gilly was like, hey, I work for this production company called 4x2 Films. It's Sasha Baron Cohen's company. They're looking for more interns. Would you like to do this? And I was like, yeah, duh, this guy's my hero. And while this like interview was happening or while these interviews were taking place for this new intern job, Sasha's teacher, this famous French clown teacher and theater divisor, Philippe Gaulier, came to Los Angeles in 2013 for the first and last time, you know, it was his first time in 20 years that he'd been there. And I think it's his last time in America since. And I took the class because I was like, all right, me being a good little Jewish boy, let me like go take a workshop and network and have something to talk about when I have this interview. And I'll be like, I just studied with your teacher. And I got there and immediately I was just blown away. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, him, Philippe and his wife, Michiko, are the two funniest people I've ever had the pleasure of spending time with. and. I just couldn't believe it. And I eventually got the job for Sasha. And about a few months in, I asked him, I was like, hey, I love to work here, but I would really love to go to this school. What do I do? And he was like, dude, go. And so I went and, you know, from there, I've been traveling the world doing shows for the last nine and a half years. Okay. There is so much in there. I just love. There's a lot lot in there. There's a lot in there. You know, I guess I'll go back to the beginning in part because one of the things I always love, I always love it when I meet people, artists in particular, who have both sides of their brains going at the same time, right? So, you know, because, you know, classically, right, stereotypically artists are, you know, they're not good at math or they're bad at business or whatever it is, right? And, you know, and the idea of jocks and athletes aren't artists and artists aren't athletes. I mean, the fact that you actually came up as an athlete explains a lot, I guess, now for me, because, well, A, at the surface, I mean, there's, you know, your comedy is, you know, in part very physical, 
and you're quick and you're sharp and you're very physical, you're moving around. And so I guess that speaks to, you know, on a certain level, the kind of the physicality or the athletic prowess that you have in your physical body. But then, you know, that competitive spirit, right? That idea that, you know, you're a winner, you want to win and you want to get out there and compete. And that drive that comes with wanting to compete and win, you know, it's uh, really, you're lucky, right? To be able to have both sides of your brain, so to speak, firing like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like as the years have gone on, where I was more like classic hetero sports guy who really wants to win the game and go crazy. What I've kept from sports that I loved is like the discipline. I I absolutely hated my basketball coach growing up. This guy, Coach Harris, who I thought was the biggest asshole in the world. Fuck you, Coach Harris. Fuck you. And I hate that. You're an asshole. (laughs) For real, man. He was so rude. He was so rude. He was just so mean to me all the time and would yeah. say some really inappropriate stuff. But like, but one thing that I will give this motherfucker credit for was he taught us how to be disciplined. And I don't necessarily agree with the ways in which he did it. But I feel like that competitive edge and discipline and humility that is needed in this business, and I think any business, and just being you know a good person and a good friend, Yeah, I really take that from sports. And I think I've been able to shed the like, result oriented competition like obviously mm-hmm. i i personally believe i'm i think i'm the funniest guy in the world and i think i'm the funniest entertainer in the world because if i don't then who else will and right. if if you don't think that about yourself well then tell me who you think is because i want to go watch that person i want to learn from the best at all times and yes constantly get my mind blown and and see how much more there is out there and how much i can aspire to achieve and i think that never ending like engine inside of me is from sports mm-hmm. and obviously the physical stuff that comes with it. Like, you know, I do train and, you know, I've started taking dance classes and I work in a dance studio now because I just want to keep my body in shape and learn my instrument better so I can, you know, do things physically on stage that I know other people can't do and create shapes and pictures and images and elicit feelings that others maybe don't have access to if they're not using their full body. But what I've taken as I've like shed and kind of dropped some of these, like maybe I just think less not that they're like negative, but just less helpful traits that come with some of the competitive sports background. I've been able to not care so much if you win or not, and just really focus on I'm competitive about how much fun can I have. I want to have as much fun as I can possibly have at all times. And that's the whole root and the whole basis and the whole fuel for the art that we do, you know, is if, if you're not having fun, for sure, we, the audience are not having fun. But if you're having fun and you're likable, well, then you're watchable. And then you can learn how to be funny later. But you got to be watchable. You got to enjoy the moments where it's hard. And, you know, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about clown philosophy and theory and ideas later. But, you know, one of the big fundamentals and the principles of clown is like, you know, everyone's good at being good, but can you be good at being bad? Hmm. And if you're then good at being bad, then there is no bad and it's always good. And then it's impressive to watch you intentionally move through good and bad to achieve whatever comedic or theatrical point or position or experience you'd like to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I just loved about what I saw that night at Stamptown was, you know, just every audience is different, right? I mean, you're walking into a new room every night or meeting a new group of humans every night and 
and you don't know how they're going to react, right? But you have to bring it, you know, and your fluffers, by the way, are fantastic. I mean, the fact that you've got, and I don't know who those guys were, but you've got, I call them fluffers, but you've got the pregame, right? You know, up there, those guys running around doing crazy fun stuff. And then you come out and do your bit, you start, you know, and you're just so fully committed. I mean, you are absolutely owning the stage, owning your role, regardless of what is happening in the audience. And then of course, at least the night that we were there, and I'm guessing this happens a lot. I mean, the audience eventually, if not sooner, you know, catches your cold, right? Like it's contagious. I mean, you're, you know, you bring an energy and a passion and and an ownership, you know, to your art and to your instrument that, you know, people with half a brain are going to have to recognize and respect and react to, you know, in the moment. And so, yeah, just that level of ownership and commitment to the piece, to the part, to the character, is just so evident. And, you know, we could go, I mean, man, there's so much I want to talk about. You know, one of the things that is so impressive. Please, I'm down for whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, definitely want to talk about Stamptown for sure. But I guess I just want to focus on you a little bit, you know, and I just met you that night and read up on you a bit since then in preparation for today. But my sense is that you're incredibly prolific, you know, and that's, you know, I guess most good artists are probably prolific or want to be prolific. But you're just involved in so many things, even beyond Stamptown. I mean, Stamptown seems to be really, it's award-winning, you're international, it's kind of a tiger, you got to, it seems like you got a tiger by the tail a little bit with that, but you're involved in so many other things. I mean, are the other characters, the other programs, productions that you're developing, are they primarily your brainchilds or are you collaborating with people? It's a mixture of things, I'm sure, but But talk a little bit about, you know, all of these things that you're involved in, because, I mean, you're incredibly prolific. Man, well, again, it's always lovely to hear someone else say the things that you think of yourself or say out loud, because it's always better when someone else says them and you don't have to say them for (laughs) yourself, you know? Right. Uh, And you're not paying me for the record. I'm not being paid for this. I appreciate you saying all this. And I'm happy. I'm just here smiling like, oh, my God, (laughs) this is a... I've not had somebody say something so nice to me in so long. I love this. <laughs> I don't know you that well. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, look, you know, give me the end of the hour and you might be like, actually, I hate this guy. And, I take and it back. I take it all back. It's a, it can be a really nasty <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like, if it's an idea that I'm a part of, I think I've usually had some sort of, like, I'm at the root of whatever the creative process is. Like, I'm the founder of stamp town the company and that's where like i i produce right now i've obviously have places where i want to take it and grow the company which is where i think we're currently at now and i'm like you know simultaneously the brokest i've ever been and also i feel like we're like in the best position to succeed i've ever been yeah i would just love all i want is resources to continue to make art i don't care about the rest of the shit like i just want to make stuff and want to be able to make stuff with the people i love to make things with and i guess currently like what we do is I started Stamptown as a way to produce my own shows. And I also realized I love to produce other people. And a lot of my favorite artists are people who are, I see more of this dynamic in the music field where you have like artists who start their own labels and they sign artists with them. And they kind of rise as like a collective, like a punk label or like a hip hop label. Those are a lot of my personal inspirations and our group inspirations. Then there's like, you know, again, there's just artists that I see who I kind of bring into the fold in the variety world, like some of the people that you saw on the nights with us or on the Stamptown night that you saw it, people like Britannic, who are good friends. They're doing art that I love. We had a conversation a few years ago about like, hey, 
I was just like, hey, I think you guys would really nail the fringe. Like, I know this world. I've messed up every single way. I promise my plans are bulletproof because when you've fucked up as many times as we have, you start to know which way to go. Again, that's our training. It's like we learn through mistakes. Yes. And you just got to roll with us and trust that and believe we can get through the other side. So it's like someone like Britannic, they're geniuses. They write their own shows. They don't need my help in any way. I think what we do is we provide them with you know, the infrastructure to go out and do this. We give them a little runway and just give them the framing device that they need for their thing to succeed. And then, you know, I think our biggest asset and maybe my biggest way that I help or influence stuff is like, we just create a collective that's fun and we create a good mood. My friend Vigo, who's Norwegian, he just won Britain's Got Talent this year. He's the funniest man in the world. He always says stuff like, we would joke if there's a good mood in the room or like you want to keep someone happy or make someone good, he would always go like, it's a good mood in the audience. And so we would say, you know, with Britannic, it's like you want to create a good mood in the audience between us. And all I got to do for them is just make them laugh, make sure they get their, they get paid on time and like they just show up to do their show. They don't need the rest of it. But I think from being around us and hanging around us, our influence and our joie de vivre and like our just our mentality on life rubs off on people to be sillier and crazier and wilder. Like I've definitely seen them take a clownier step without going full clown. Like you don't need to go full clown, but that I think is as much or as look, people can take our influence as much or as little as they want or our hand or help in any way. But like these are fully established individuals who need nothing from us other than the bare minimum. And I'm just like, Oh, this is so easy to facilitate. Like this is a home run and all you've got to do is just fill out the paperwork. And I'm like, well, yeah, obviously I'm going to do that. And then I get to bring these cool guys who I love and I love to hang out with and are my good friends and like to, you know, make cool stuff with me. And, you know, that's like the other end of it. And then obviously if it's like my shows at the variety show, you know, I'm working on that all the time. And if people ask me for notes, like I try to create a environment where it's like, Hey, I'm trusting you, me as the producer, trust you as the artist to make whatever show you want to make. If you ask me questions or my thoughts, or you want notes or opinions about jokes, of course, we love to collaborate. Everybody loves to help each other. It's a very selfless collab. It's never like, I wrote this joke for your show. It's like, dude, this is your show and I'm here to help you succeed. So if they want that, we'll do that. But also I kind of just like to stay the fuck out of people's way. And the same way I want people to stay out of my way, unless I'm asking for help or someone who I trust is like, yo, I think you need help here. And then we trust each other so that when we do speak up or say things to each other this way, our influence it doesn't feel like anyone's ever intruding or imposing their will on someone, but we're all really going towards the same goal of trying to help each other make the best possible show, whatever that is. Well, I feel like there's a lot of sort of connections back to your athletics and your sport life, you know, because it feels like on a certain level, you're a coach, right? Trying to create the space for the team and your teammates to thrive and win and, you know, perform at their best. So on one hand, you're a coach, but on the other hand, it is this team spirit, right? That it feels like you're creating. It's like, no, no, I'm trying to give these guys the space to just, you know, perform it at their highest level. That's such an enlightened, beautiful thing, you know, because artists can learn from sports and vice versa. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm reminded of the old saying, you know, there is no I in team, but there is in dick and bitch. And so. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and so. <laughs> oh, you never heard that. <laughs> uh, no, that was really good. It's good. Right. So and that's what I loved about one of the things I loved about Samtown is that it felt like. 
I was watching a group of friends or professional colleagues, whatever, who were completely singing from the same sheet music and just sort of, you know, all in it, all, you know, connected in a collegial, a communal way that just, you know, what is that saying about like, you know, the sum is greater than the parts or whatever. It just, it just was kind of yeah. exponential. Man, I completely agree. And it's like cool to talk with someone more about this sports arts crossover. Cause one, I just feel like all sports would be way better if everybody was a bit more theatrical and like dramatic about it. Like I feel like to really sell a pump fake in basketball and give it your all and really commit to the character of a guy who's going <laughs> to shoot a basketball and then to rip it away. I think sports are so showy. I, I think theater is so athletic, like whatever. I had what I felt was going to be like a genius idea and it just has slipped out of my head. <laughs> but of course there's this parallel, you know, between the two of these. And I feel like we are athletes and the way that I look at the show, it's like a playbook where when I grew up, I'm a little Jewish boy from the suburbs of Chicago, a New York Jew who moved to the Burbs. And on a team of all white Jewish kids, I'm the second tallest guy on the team and I'm six one in basketball shoes, you know? So we are fundamentally sound. I know every position. I know every alternative play from every position. We have multiple series. You know, we'd have blue series, white series, black series, gold series. You got your all different types of plays and you got to know all your options. And it's like, this is ideally how I want this joke to go. This is ideally how I would like this piece to roll and work with this. But if this joke's not open here, well, then I'm going to run to this. And now switching from basketball to football, it's like there is a Hail Mary joke that's on every play and you can hit it if you want to. You just got to be able to stick that landing and catch that. And to me, it's become this through this training that I have with clown where it's so much for the audience. Like the way that I see clown is like, it's a humble, it's like you're on your knee, your head is bowed and you're like looking up to the crowd and it's like, whatever you want is what I will do. And Mm -hmm. it's a mix of tricking them or making them think that they come up with the ideas that you can repeat. So you can, you know, give them a repeatable a set or formula every night. It's listening to them. So, you know, turning your brain off and just listening with your gut impulsively to ride the rhythm of the room. I, I teach, you know, two clown workshops called listen for laughs and read the room. And it's just about like letting the audience tell you where to go. And if you know the playbook and you know the ins and outs of the playbook and every press or blitz, you look at like a show going wrong is someone blitzing you or you're getting a full court press. As long as you can stay calm and you know all the options, our job is to forget about it all and play and trust that I have all of it inside right here. Mm. And that I know that if I'm just listening and I'm just listening to really what's happening here, I never need to come up with what I need to do because it's always coming right back from what's right in front of me in the room. And that like playbook mentality, I think really bleeds into the way we play as an ensemble, because as you said, I fully believe this. We are some of the most talented individuals in the world on that stage when we get together and we are as a group unstoppable when we are all playing in the way that we can where we're all listening to each other and we trust each other and we respect each other everyone's taking their moment when it's their moment and everyone's playing with that athletic edge or that competitive athletic edge where it's like i want to steal the show tonight i want everyone to go out there and steal the show i want everybody to be the funniest part of the show and i want them to do it in the most selfless respectful way possible and when we play that way, where there's layers and layers and layers of running gags, and we've got 9, 10, 11, we've started seeing it more like solar systems these days, where it's like, you've got your inner games really strong, and you've got your outer games flying across, and you're like, man, I had 
you know, six different jokes that I never thought were going to come back in here. And now all these different individuals are coming in and playing and hitting these jokes. To me, that creates this like, you know, it's like, you know, when I don't know how much of a sports guy you are, but like when the Seattle Seahawks had these like a legion of the boom, like those epic teams they had and they call like the audience, the crowd, like the 11th man or the 12th man, whatever it was. It's like, it really starts to feel like we're conjuring up the spirit of the theater, the way that basketball players can get a hot hand you get this magic around you and when we're all playing together it's i mean that feeling alone is worth you know struggling every other day for the rest of the year leading up to being able to do that show again yeah i mean because when i saw the show because i mean part of what you're hitting on well you're hitting on so many important things you know this idea that there's a muscle memory to what you're doing like to really be in the moment, right? You can't be thinking about what's going on. You've just got to be like almost empty brain, right? Like on some level, cause you yeah. just have to be super present. Yeah. And then it's about the muscle memory. It's like, okay, yeah, we have played, we have run these plays in practice so many times. Everyone knows not just their part, but everyone else's part. And people know the alternative plays. If this happens then do that or whatever, you know, and you get that, you rehearse, you rehearse, you rehearse, you practice, practice, practice muscle memory so that the night of the game, the night of the show, you're not thinking about that. And what I loved about the show, and I'm so glad we're talking about this because there is absolutely, of course, you know, I guess I know enough to know better, but even, you know, for myself, like I just would forget, of course, that this wasn't the first night that you've been like, you have been doing this forever, but it sort of felt so fresh, like, oh my God, I'm seeing something completely impromptu, completely spontaneous. That was the freshness, right? And yet, of course, I know that, you know, that that's the professionalism, that's the preparation, you know, that's the 10, 20, 30,000 hours, whatever. But that's the feeling in the audience. It's like, wow, this, I mean, they're just doing this on the fly, you know, because that's what it feels like. Yeah. 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 And that's the fun thing is like, I always, with our shows, I want people to leave being like, is that the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life? Or is that guy a genius? You know, <laughs> exactly. and I don't want you guys to know. I love leaving it in that suspense. I don't think it's important one way or another for a crowd to know what is or isn't planned. Right. I think as always, what's most important is like, it's the lie. It's fun. This is what I learned from my teacher, Philippe, as well. I am very at odds with a lot of like American acting institutions is this idea that acting is real. And it's like, no, it's not. The whole point is that it's fake. So when then people ask you to, you know, I think it's vulgar to ask people to like conjure up horrible memories or like if you're playing a character where God forbid they've experienced an assault and they're like, remember this time. It's like, dude, that's therapy. And that's like, you're not a licensed professional. Fuck you. Don't ever ask anyone to do that. How about you lie and act about it? We have a special pleasure as humans when we are being a bad boy or a bad girl and you lie to somebody and it's that twinkle in the eye, that spirit of life. That's what you want to see. It's such a healthier approach to be like, okay, rather than like, I'm going to feel this horrible thing. It's like, I'm going to come at this from a place of pleasure and I'm going to have so much fun going out there tonight and breaking these people's hearts. Like watch, I'm going to pretend to break my heart right now. And you guys are going to all like, you're going to fall for this. And I think like, the more people try to make this thing real, it's like, you know, no, I'm coming after Daniel Day-Lewis. No offense, brother, but like you can live as him all you want, but you're not Abraham Lincoln. Like Abraham Lincoln's dead. <laughs> you can, like the fucking losers like Jared Leto who are like 
sending rats and like condoms to people because they're method and in character. Like, dude, get a fucking hobby, man. Like, read a book. Go shoot some hoops. Like, you don't need to do that. Like, there's like funny games and pranks between casts and stuff, but like this whole like I'm in my care. It's like, dude, shut up. Like, just you either can do it or you don't. Like, I'm not Jack Tucker. If I want to, I can talk like this all of a sudden and I'm doing the voice and I feel like it, but I'm like doing a character that I'm very aware I'm doing a character of, you know? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've I think I've said my piece with that part, but it's like you just have fun with the like use what we have. There's no need to fight against right the nature here. Well, and it's also hard enough, right? Like don't make it any harder yeah. than it needs to be, right? Exactly. Like <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. I mean, yes, it's fun. It's our calling. We love it, but it's to do it well, it's just difficult. And it can be, you know, and so let's not make it any harder or difficult than it already is. We're loving these sports connections. And we also, you know, I thought you were born and raised in New York, but you actually are a Midwest Chicago guy, huh? I was born in New York and then I grew up in Chicago. I was in New York until I was like five-ish. Uh-huh. And then Chicago, I was there for like 13 years. Okay. Uh, Chicago land area. Okay. And I moved to LA when I was 18. Uh-huh. And then France at 20. I was there until I was 22. And then I was touring the world nomadically with my comedy partners. I didn't have a permanent address from 2013 till 2020. It was the pandemic that made me get an address again. And then funny enough, I came back home. I was started off the pandemic in London. I mean, we're jumping around a lot here, but then I, during the pandemic, started working at the Dodger Stadium COVID test site and then the COVID vaccine site. And I was one of the people that like ran the world's largest COVID vaccine site, which was pretty wild and crazy in itself. Yeah, right, right. Well, so I grew up outside Chicago as well. So the Chicago connection, you know, really resonates because you kept mentioning Second City. And, you know, when I was living downtown, I'm a lot older than you, but when I was living downtown, you know, I would go to Second City. I mean, that was the era of Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and, you know, all those guys. And then, of course, it was the Bulls, you know, and Phil Jackson. Right. You know, and bringing it back around to like the sports analogy, like what was so great. One of the things that made the Bulls so great was Phil Jackson, of course. But, you know, and everyone wants to point to Michael Jordan and, of course, MJ is MJ. But, you know, I think a lot of people that maybe don't know any better well, A, don't appreciate the fact that Mike was there, you know, long before the game started doing drills, layups, whatever, right? And it's that muscle memory, right? Because in the game, he doesn't want to be thinking about any of this. He's got to react in the moment. And am I comparing you to Michael Jordan? I don't know. Maybe. But, I mean, look, hey. I'll take it. I'll, I'll absolutely yeah. take it. But then Phil Jackson, right, famously had the team, you know, meditate, hold hands and meditate and clear their mind and get, you know, into the moment. And, you know, all of these principles, I just feel like are very prevalent in what you're doing and how you, you know, make your art and produce and what I felt and saw at Stamptown. Now the, I'm horrible with names and I forget now who all was with you that night, but to what extent does the lineup change night after night? Because I know you move around, you go to different cities, so it has to change. And maybe you have a couple people that travel with you, but talk a little bit about your approach to the lineup in a given night in a given city. Yeah. So great question. The short answer is it's always changing. And we have a wide database of Stamptown regulars that are strewn across New York, London, LA, Australia, India, New Zealand, you know, South America. <laughs> really, we've got folks on all continents. We're coming for Antarctica. We're just, we're not there yet. <laughs> Papua New Guinea's coming. So basically, yeah, 
we're coming. There's some really funny penguins who've got some great physical comedy routines down there. But basically, we've like we've got a squad, and my dream show pulls a little bit of everybody. Yeah, it pulls from every market, and you know I'm thankful that these are the entertainment capitals, so people are are frequently moving between the three of these mm-hmm. or the main ones of New York, London, and L.A. And then places like Edinburgh, when we're there for the Fringe, it's amazing because we've got all of these just like amazing international folks at our disposal who are all there and everyone's fully down again they've bought into our triangle offense if you will and know the system and know the entire thing you know where it's like hey if my job is to come in here and throw elbows box out and get in the other team's best player's head and draw some fouls like they're like coach with pleasure will i go and do this tonight and that's like again the beauty of all the idiots that we work with is like we'll get people who are so everyone who's on the show is more than good enough to do a set on the show. But to me, the sets are the parts that I'm least interested in. It's all the action in between and all the ways that we can weave it all together and play in those middle bits that I'm interested in making. It's that ensemble piece. So as far as like as people who we travel with, when I guess some examples, like when we did Montreal Just for Laughs this year, I was offered X amount of money for a show to do four nights of Stamptown. I then use that money to bring out somebody. The first person I always have to have is a technician, someone who can run the sound effects for the show. And I've got about four people who can do it, two who can do it really well, and two more who are on the way. And it's hard. You know, yeah. it's really hard. And yeah, it's like by the way, not to interrupt you, but let's just, you know, explain to the audience, like, the sound effects are key, man. You know, the guy, that's one of the things that I was appreciating as well. Like, man, whoever's working the sound booth is on it. I mean, because, you know, I mean, they really, they're on their mark. They're on their cue. Yeah, the night that you saw it was my good friend Jeremy Elder. He's great. And so uh, Johnny Woolley is the OG tech. He's a Canadian who lives in London. We created the soundscape together for the actual Jack Tucker live show that I do with Dylan Woodley, who is our usual pre-show entertainment, who I cannot wait for you to see next time we do this. Because his pre-show is the, that's the proper pre-show. It's uh, then it blends really well into the live show. Like it's, you know, it, it's funny because I've had to start from many beckonings from my manager to please stop telling people if I don't like a show when they come to it and to just let them tell me that they like it and have me (laughs) shut up and like he's like you could talk to me about this later but just like stop telling people if you don't like it and I'm like yeah I know I just want them to know it can be better and so (laughs) and it's no knock on everyone who was just in the show we did the show that we did most of the people were playing their roles on the sides for the first time Mm. so it's like we're I'm like kind of show running backstage as this is happening. And then also being like, hey, if you feel this moment again, or when this gunshot happens here and this person falls, I want you to peek out from the top and just feel, notice how you feel there. Mm. And then every time from now on, after you feel like when you feel like that space or that impulse for that, that type of movement is there, go for it, pop out, see what happens, show your face. Another thing we always tell them is like, leave while they love you so you can come back for more. Yeah. There's nothing worse than seeing somebody overstay their welcome after we've liked them and then be like, ah, actually, I hate this guy. Come out for three seconds, be hilarious, have them go, wait, what the hell just happened? And then come back again and again and again and again. And it's like, I know that doesn't fully, this is a different part from the question that you initially answered, like, who do I take with me? But, you know, I, I always try and see who's available and I try and find someone. It's like, okay, I would like to have one co-host character. I would like one or two people who can play the wings. I would like someone who does something that's maybe a bit shocking or not like vulgar or grotesque just for the sake of it, unless we choose to, but like more something that's like, holy shit, I've never seen that before. Cause we know a lot of performers who can do that type of stuff. And like, 
it can we pull some epic crazy name to do something really stupid would be my dream yeah scenario like the bigger the name the less they do i don't want like big name doing big thing i want big person to be like a silent like you know the sticks like you know the clapper <laughs> clapper guy for the show or something and you're like wait is that is that brad pitt you know what i mean like some <laughs> right, some stupid right, shit like this right right um, and for the record brad pitt's done stamp town hundreds of times exactly but who's counting <laughs> well who's counting yeah four you know, one of the things that struck me about Stamptown is, I mean, obviously, even you know, it's in the copy. I mean, it's a variety show, but at its very base, base level. But it's sort of like this, like because you know, historically, right, variety show was very structured and very straightforward. You know, and now we have a ventriloquist, and now we have a juggler, and now we have a singer or whatever, right? And then you know, but then mm-hmm. across town. At the underground theater, there was this avant-garde shit going on that was crazy and wacky and weird and so on and so forth. And, you know, and all the cool kids went to the maybe the avant-garde underground theater for the cutting edge shit. And then all of the uh, squares or the you know mom and dad went to the variety show or whatever. And what Stamptown, see, you know, this is my assessment, but I mean, you know, you tell me what you think, of course, and how wrong I am. But the idea that Stamptown brings this very avant-garde approach to the variety show. I mean, like, I just felt like, wow, am I in an underground theater doing like cutting edge avant-garde shit? Or am I in a Hollywood theater seeing like a variety show? Well, the answer is both. Oh. I mean, first off, please come with us to all of our upcoming pitch meetings. For the love of God, that sounds like it rocks. <laughs> I think the same, you know, I'm like, I don't know, again, I don't think I lack any confidence in the product that we're putting out. But I sometimes I think forget, I, like I'm very desensitized to all of this because I've seen a lot and I've done a lot on stage. And to me, what I appreciate is like, people have said like avant-garde, not to like, fucking suck my own dick here it's more just like trying to figure it out but people have said like avant-garde or like people are like it's dadaist in this way and i'm like i don't think it's like that much like i like it to me it's a lot of times i think of it as like pop punk it's like it is rock and roll and we are like we want to have this punk rock but i'm like we're much less screamo and more like it's 4 a.m. and I'm crying in the bathroom. You know, like it's like one of those ones where it's like it's fully accessible <laughs> punk emo music. And like everybody can love it. Like, dude, our, our show is like we're exclusively inclusive. Like everyone is allowed to be there. And the only people we don't want there are people who don't want to be there. If you want to be there, then you're welcome. Just like, you know, don't like heckle the performance, please. And just be kind and also lose your fucking minds and have a great time. But I think in the way that we approach stuff, we definitely come from this older vaudevillian approach. And it has this clown anarchic, if you will, avant-garde style to it where I want it to, like, I want this to be engineered like a thrilling roller coaster where you don't, again, you're like, "Uh oh, is this about to fall apart? But it's all controlled chaos. And you can see the strings being pulled the entire time. There is no, we're not hiding that. And we only ever hide it for select jokes or like pull focus from it from jokes. But then it all rushes back to you and you're like, oh my God, obviously these idiots have been doing, like they planned this the whole fucking time. Like, how did I not see this, you know? And it's never like, I'm not precious about people getting or not getting meaning or like, you know, oh my God, what was the deeper point of this? It's like, no, again, I just want people to have fun and enjoy themselves and laugh and have a great time. And whatever we need to do to make that happen, we will. And our company motto, we I always say is like, 
Stamptown is a collective of simps with tiny wieners and big hearts, and we're positive male role models for the youths. And <laughs> that's all we want to be. We want to just encourage. I want every title of every show that we do, I want people to crack up having to say that out loud because they can't believe that's the name of an actual title of something that was made. I want them to laugh so hard when they try and explain something and have the eventual you know, reaction where you explain something from a Stamptown show and nobody laughs and you're like, Man, it is so funny that nobody is laughing at me telling this thing that I loved so much. Because like that's part of what it means yes. to be in this. You know, you love something so much that people just don't get, and it's fucking hilarious and it's awesome. And then they come one time, and it just takes one one thing for them for it to click, and they're like, "Okay, now I see it." Yeah, well, and I we had that experience. I mean, our dear friend Rachel Ben David, who saw you, I guess it was London, she saw you, but she was trying I to explain believe it. that either. I, I was playing it cool. But like, holy shit, that's, she was, was so nice and so amazing. And like, again, just, I was blown away meeting all of you guys after the show. I just like, I couldn't believe, you know, I'm like a moron, dude. Yeah, you know, I'm, it's wild anytime. I, I go into every show being like, surely this is the last one that people come to. Like, they're not going to come back anymore. And then they keep coming back and I'm like, all right, well, I mean, like, I don't want to stop, but like, <laughs> I don't know what to do with all of this. I hope someone pulls me the hell out of here and helps me figure this out and make this into something that I know it can be. But I'm like, I'm just shocked every time that anybody shows up and that uh, they stay and like it. it well, is a- that humility that you have and that respect and gratitude that you have is a gift, you know, and I think as long as you can hang on to that humility and that sense of shock and awe that anyone showed up <laughs> and that people keep coming back, <laughs> uh, you know, like that's that you're just going to keep bringing it because, you know, as soon as, you start to become, you know, I don't know, jaded or arrogant or whatever it is, you know, that's the kiss of death in my view for your humanity, if not for your art. But anyway, but yeah, Rachel, you know, in explaining, you know, she's like, oh my God, like you got to see this. And she tried to explain it. And of course, you know, as you just said, it's impossible to translate in some ways, but you know, this guy pretends to be James Bond and you're like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) so then what? (laughs) And she just looked at me and she knows me. She knows I'm down for whatever. Like, I don't give a, you know, like I'll go. Yeah. And she just says, Scotty, just trust me. You're going to love it. And you just got to see it. You know, I'm like, yeah, 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 let's go. You know, and so one of the things that I wanted to kind of talk to you about, because, you know, I'm sort of interested in this, and this sort of harkens back to a conversation that a buddy of mine and I were having about a few years ago, we were talking about Eric Andre, you know, the comic and, you know, I'm Gen X, I'm 53, you know, it's a lot older than you, but part of what we were talking about vis-a-vis Eric and his comedy style, you know, was this kind of frenetic nature, right? So like, my generation was born analog and we saw the digital revolution come online, right? So I saw, not only did I see the internet, I saw cable television come on. I saw MTV be born. I saw, then I saw the internet. Then I said, you know, so we get to see this arc of the tech, right? Whereas your generation was born digital. You know, you came up with the internet and with things that we didn't. And so, and we're living in, you know, the, all the things about shorter attention spans and we're drowning in content and, you know, and then now, of course, we're living in the era of TikTok and it's like, I call them bite-sized oh, yeah. entertainment. Ruining my brain. Right. And so then, you know, we're, you know, air the Eric Andre show, like one of the things that we loved about it was this chaotic, frenetic 
aesthetic. You know, it was just like you didn't know what was coming. And I just wondered if it was a generational thing, like to what extent did millennials and Gen Z and now Gen Alpha, you know, do they respond to your aesthetic because it somehow connects to how their brains work, which of course was born, you know, this digital era that we're living in. And it's hard to maybe the cool young kids these days don't maybe appreciate the long setup and then the thing and then the punchline, you know, five minutes later, like you need to keep it moving, you know? And so I was just, you know, it's a theory, it's an idea. I'm just wondering what you think about that and how did your upbringing, your youth, you know, you know, how does it inspire the comedy that you do, which has this chaotic kind of scrolling like, you know, aesthetic. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously I am the poster child of undiagnosed ADD, ADHD, and every attention deficit problem of the nineties and early two thousands. My parents just like never wanted me on meds because they just didn't know anything about it. So I never got tested and stuff. And then years later, I'm like, Oh, I really think I would have got a lot more done (laughs) in in two days. Would get a lot better. But yeah, I mean, I have a pretty. I'm a psycho, so I've got a pretty like. This is like my rhythm in my head at all times. Like it's you know it's 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 always moving, and I feel like every opportunity should be a joke. So if I don't get a laugh in all thirteen of those snaps that I just did, I'm like, well, I'm bombing, and I've blown this. And I think what we try to do is I try to. Without ever like, I don't think this panders to the new like TikTok scrolling compilation content market. But what I am keeping in mind is like, all right, you can still access people and get people to watch movies and TV shows and watch live shows. It is obviously still possible. We all possess this. You just got to kind of shake it out of our fucking body a little bit. And I feel like what I try to do with the show is I just try to keep the rhythm of this going so that no act, ideally acts are like, three to five minutes long Mm -hmm, right is the best you have an epic like the conductor you know you get my buddy amadeo who comes and does a three minute and 13 second bit stupid physical bit ends with a big dumb punchline and we keep the show rocking energy up you're happy you're so happy that that's over and that you loved it and you're so excited that then we come back on and then you're so excited to see the next thing and in between all of that while it's moving fast it's like cool i'm gonna do a 15 second chunk here so i just keep it going and I'll do my larger beat late, you know, and it's like people always say comedy is about timing, but to me, it's all about rhythm. It's like, you're all just, I see it a lot. Like I'm very inspired. I'm a huge hip hop fan. I, I grew up on hip hop, like all Jewish kids. I'm a hip hop sports boy, hip hop sports and comedy. And I'm very, very inspired and passionate about music production, specifically like beat production and the ways in which they layer some of these, like, they're just like, it's like a temple, some of these songs, the way that they can so delicately put together all these different sounds and know when to call them back and when to come up on a beat or down or you throw in like a rest or, a, you know, just like a pause for a sec. And like that to me is those flares and those down beats or those like rests that you build in. That's how you combat the rhythm of the attention span. Like kind of not focusing so much and you use these little things to keep pulling them back in so it's like i might be doing a seven minute joke about the same thing but i'm going to pull you in with this little joke here and then like seven seconds later a sound effect will come there and then another 10 seconds later this thing will come here and then for the next three seconds every half of a second you have like a ding 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 type thing so it's just all these different ways to like keep them engaged 
And I think a lot of the Andre stuff, it feels like it's such a sensory. I love Eric Andre, man. I absolutely love Eric Andre. Everything that he's done, Tim and Eric, absolutely. That whole gang, like we've worked with those folks. Like that's the golden ticket right there. But like, it's such a sensory overload and such a, I can't look away. Yeah, right. And that I think is what we try to yes, yes. capture as well. And they do that with the way that they edit. The way that they edit is genius. Like people like Vic Berger and like Doug Pound, like these guys that like can edit those. I know my favorite edit in my head from the Andre show. And it's just like, it's stupid. It gains your attention. It uses, you know, it hits on all of your senses with, you know, just you makes you feel stuff like really like, oh, really, really viscerally. It's like you're seeing all these crazy visuals. You're getting additional like animation on top of live action. And then you're getting sounds and music and just a soundscape that's really rich and is invigorating the word or like, I mean, I said visceral already, but it's like it elicits like a strong reaction. And I think then that pulls you in even harder. And now you're like, well, I can't look away. And once you hop on the ride, you know, it's why would you want to get off? Like it's, I feel like it's like almost soothing to all the chaos that's around us. And I feel like, you know, art's obviously a, just an imitation of what's going on. And like, we're in a pretty chaotic moment and we have been for the last few years. And so I feel like art right now should be more absurd and abstract because it is chaotic and it's constantly feeling like everything's going to end or it's the best thing or it's the worst thing or it's the last thing or what's the next thing. Or it's, you know, it's like you think of just like how shows, you know, a show can be in the zeitgeist so strong for five days and then you just never hear about it ever again. So this constant like feeling like everyone's like, you know, treading water or paddling. It's like, all right, well, if this is my moment to go and do this, then I'm going to give you every fucking thing I got and I'm going to blast your face off so you have no choice but to come back and do this again, you know, or convince somebody to give us million dollars to keep doing it. You know, it's one or the other. Absolutely. Well, I love what you talked about in terms of saying, you know, comedy is about rhythm. That really resonates with me because there is such a rhythm to what you guys do. And the fact that you suck us in with that rhythm and with the fast pace of it all, you know, like you're compelled to not look away. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I can't look away. I'm going to miss something, you know, and I don't want to miss anything because that last thing I saw was fucking awesome. And the thing before that was fucking awesome. And I know the next thing's probably going to be fucking awesome. So I can't even go to the bathroom and I really have to piss. So, you know what? I'm just going to sit here because I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yep. That's how I feel. To me, I'm like, when I go to shows and stuff, I'm like, I'd rather piss my pants in my seat than miss this show. Unless the show is terrible that I'm like, you know, Lord, get me out of there. But I hope that nobody leaves. And that's why I'm also like to my team. I'm like, guys, let's keep this shit shorter. I want everyone to see this. Like, yeah. Yeah. But I also love that, you know, when people do go to the bathroom or people need to leave, it's like you make everything all part of it. So then they do feel part of it. And it's like, we're never picking on people either. I don't really like that. I think you know, everyone's doing their best to get by all the time and you don't know what people are going through. And unless someone's being like an overt asshole in the crowd, like, sure, you know, lace them up, have some fun. But like to just be antagonistic for the sake of it, I am not attracted to that at all. And that does not excite me artistically in any way. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I totally get that. And I will say that I don't know about you, but I'm a huge, you know, talk about picking on audience members. I'm a huge Jeffrey Ross fan, right? And Roast Master General, right? But one of the highlights of my life as a comedy fan was one night I found myself at the comedy store, the second row was, it was dead. It was like dead. It was like 30 people in the room or what I don't even know what was it. But for whatever reason, Jeff came in and did a set, right? It was kind of a warm summer night. I was wearing my jeans, my black t-shirt, which is sort of my uniform, jeans and a black t-shirt. And I was wearing flip-flops, right? 
It was like I said, it was a hot summer night. Anyway, Jeff comes on the stage and he's like looking around, you know, and he sees me and then he looks me up and down. He sees my flip flops. And oh, my God, he roasted me for what felt like 10 minutes. It was probably two minutes. But I just I was feeling like I was being anointed by the comedy gods. And, you know, and I was laughing so hard that I think it was egging him on because he knew I was game. You know what I mean? Like he's like, oh, this guy's down for it. So that was awesome. I just love that. And I would even say then in that, it's like he is, quote unquote, making fun of you, but he's not. He's having fun with you. And yes. that to me is fine. That I love. You know, it's like when you know what the game, it's just establishing and like different people have different ideas of what the word game means. Like, you know, if you yes. ask the UCB improvisers, the game is the game of the scene versus like, to me, it's like from a clown background, like a game is like, it's not like there's a specific game of the scene. There's just like multiple games that can be happening throughout the performance. And it's like, if this guy's game is, hey, I'm going to make fun of you because I roast people funny. Well, everyone knows what they're expecting. It's not like a shock or it's not like an unwanted hit on somebody like that. I love to do stuff. I mean, even like with us, we roast each other on the show all the time. You think of the Britannic boys coming out there, you know, with that SNL bit where they play my Saturday Night Live audition tape. That for those listening, you know, you send in a tape and it's like, you only send that to your closest friends because it is the cringiest thing you could ever make in your life. It's never funny. You know, it's really embarrassing. And yeah. and it's also really important. You want to do well and you take it really seriously. So it's this thing that you really care a lot about, but you're also embarrassed about and you don't want anyone to know, but you also want everyone's feedback. And I sent this to a few of my friends who were writers on the show and are really funny and I love these guys. And we've started doing a bit where they say that they're doing this without my permission, but they start playing the worst parts of my tape. And it's all the impressions that like when I made it to the next round, I was asked not to do. (laughs) 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 They're like, yeah, maybe like stays away from those ones. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. I'm not really an impressionist. And so we have my two buddies, Brian and Nick, roasting me about this. And then Brian, I think, said the line, which was like, gee, I wonder why Lauren didn't want that one. And then everyone cracks up because there's making fun of the host who's been me fucking with them at this point. And then Natalie comes back on stage and goes, wait, didn't you guys get fired by SNL? And then it's like, then they get hit out at, and then it's all of us yelling at each other. And then the floodgates open and the dancing cowboy comes back. And then the two, you know, stagehands come back and then another naked guy comes back. And it's like, and now you've just opened the door to, again, this group play where we're all effectively doing a touchdown celebration and we haven't even scored a touchdown yet. You know, we're celebrating for just being on the field. Love it. <laughs> Oh my God. It's so true. It's so true. I can't believe we've already been talking for over an hour. It's incredible. It's been, it feels like I, know, five I, I was also like, have I given you, I was like, have I given you anything of value at all? Have I said anything? No, no, not at all. We have to keep talking. Maybe you'll save salvage this Zach. But if you could hang for a few more minutes, yes, absolutely. I can. I'm really curious to hear a shift gears a little bit because you know, you got into art and performance to be a performing artist, not necessarily to be a business owner, entrepreneur, you know, producer. You own a company running a business, uh, international, you know, I'm assuming you're dealing with a lot of money, you're dealing with a lot of egos, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, moving parts. You're running a business and you're a businessman. And so, you know, talk a little bit about that because, you know, it comes with the territory, right? It's the necessary evil, so to speak, to do what you do. Obviously, I'm guessing, you know, you don't do it alone. You probably have wonderful, 
you know, colleagues and support, or maybe you do a lot of it by yourself, but talk a little bit about the struggle. The struggle is real running a business, even in the best of circumstances, let alone as an artist, you know, and you want to just make the art and let somebody else handle the business. Obviously you've mentioned your manager, you know, trying to save you from yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, just say, thank you. Just say, thank you. That's all you have to say. But talk about the ups and downs and the realities of being an artist slash business owner and some of the challenges and what you've learned. Yeah. I mean, for me, I've always had a very, like, I'm going to take matters into my own hands attitude and approach towards life. Like I, you know, from when I was young with teachers, it's like, if I didn't feel like this teacher was in it for the right reasons, or they did not have our best interests in mind, well, then I was a fucking nightmare. And I was not like a torturous student, but I would just be like, I would call people out on bullshit because, you know, I just feel like there's a way to do everything. And I always want to figure out how to do it. And I never thought that I would like, I never in my mind thought that I would get into this. Like, I didn't know what producing meant even until, even after I started doing it, I just like said I was doing it. And, you know, it's funny if you look back at my life, like doing admin was never my strong suit. Like I waited to do all of my college applications to the last minute. Like I always did all all of my work last minute. I was a big procrastinator and I really only started doing it because when we started touring as Zach and Vigo, Vigo's... English second language and he spells cookie K-O-O-K-I. So he wasn't going to be the one filling out our applications and our tax forms. And Johnny from Canada is lazy and didn't want to do it. So it was up to me if he wanted to do it. And I was like, well, I guess, you know, lean on the young, enthusiastic American who's willing to do whatever it takes to make it work. The unfunny guy who wants to make the show with the funny guys. And, you know, it's really hard. It is just me, at least full time. I am very thankful and lucky that when we do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I'm able to hire my friend Michaela Drummond, who she's an amazing producer and just her business mind is second to none. She also, funny enough, is a pilot and is currently working in like Scottish airspace for like international like law for airspace and shit. And so she's like my number one. I also run it with Dylan Woodley. Dylan is my comedy partner from Canada as well from Dylan Brand. And he runs Dylan Brand, which Dylan Brand's a premium lifestyle experience solutions company. Now I know what you're thinking. It sounds like a pyramid scheme. It's not. It's a premium triangle. Now, <laughs> more on that later. But yeah, it's really hard, you know, because if I, Zach Zucker, the entity or the entertainer, don't make money, be it as a teacher, as an actor, as a writer, as a performer, as a comedian, as a producer, the company makes no money. But the company can make money and I don't make money, if that right. makes sense. Because oh, like, totally. I have to then yeah, go yeah. pay everybody else. Yeah. And, and I really, for better or for worse, again, not to make myself a martyr, because like, you know, I suck with money as well. And like, I've forgotten to pay people or just taken too long because I haven't had money. Because again, I'm a moron. Like, I think I'm a really good entrepreneur, but I'm not the best business man, if that makes sense. Like, I'm good in the chaos and I'm good as things are taking shape. But once they need to take shape and maintain, I think it's better to pass that on. But I don't have the funds, unfortunately. I think we're at a point with a company where I would really like to grow. And I have all the ways that I would like to grow as a live production company where we're touring internationally beyond just the shows that I have the capacity to do myself. And we have infrastructure to tour the United States and, you know, all over Europe, Australia, Asia, and it's kind of the markets that we've mainly been in. I would love to be filming specials and helping pull some of the great work from the live scene and put it to a larger audience, especially to introduce that to a larger American and international crowd. Cause I think our work, you know, we've proven we can, you know, like I did Jack Tucker in India. You know what I mean? Like I called myself Jack Tuk Tuk. It was awesome. People loved it. <laughs> and like, and it was so good. It was like making jokes about Joe Rogan and Rogan Josh and like mixing up all the stuff. Like, dude, it's you put a universal game anywhere and it'll work. 
And, you know, then we'd love to like, you know, go more, you know, I'd love to run my own festival one day. I would love to potentially run venues. I want to take the show to Broadway. I want to make our own film and television. We have all of our ideas. We want to film the TV, you know, like there's so much that we want to do. And unfortunately, you know, I'm still like, I do all of our website edits and I do all of our taxes and I do all of our merch orders and I coordinate all of our design and I do all of our international visas. Like I'm thankful that I am read and I'm able to do all of this. But the unfortunate part is then that takes away from a lot of the creative that I would love to be doing. And I know that I can do all of this and I will continue to plug the gaps until I don't have to, but I am not desperately and that I am desperate, but we are like desperately looking for, not that we need someone to come save us, but I have to go book a big job. And then my first thing I'm going to do is hire some people to run the company. And so, you know, probably I'll, as our venues <laughs> increase and the money that we make increases, our costs triple that. Right. <laughs> so we're still always making the same amount of money, which is hard. You know, you don't get into clowning to get rich. Like you do it because you love it and there's really nothing else that you can do. And you, I can't see myself doing anything else and I don't want to do anything else. It's kind of just this like, all right, well, that's where the discipline comes back in. Mm -hmm. And it's that, you know, luck meets opportunity and yeah. I, or preparation Ration. meets opportunity yeah. with luck. Yeah. And I believe, and I think my friends always say I'm the right level of like confident and delusional and I believe in people and I feel like I am so thankful for the amount that people have given me and how much they've been willing to buy into this team first mentality when they don't have to. And they give so much time to this. You know, I pay everybody for shows like nobody ever doesn't get paid for shows. And like, I obviously would like to walk away with more than I do a lot of the times. But again, I'd rather keep everyone happy and keep them coming back so we can do this and hit whatever that next ultimate level is. And to like, you know, try and cash out on one individual show, because that's how you lose the goodwill. And like, whether it's audience yeah. members, whether it's artists, whether it's staying with people, like we have only survived off the goodwill of people. You know, what you're hitting on is really powerful because, you know, just a personal story real quick. So, you know, one of the things that we, as I was saying before the podcast, our company, my company exists to help artists tell their stories and promote their work, period. You know, and our roots are in visual art. But, you know, we do performing arts as well. And I particularly like to find opportunities to help artists who are, you know, generally not respected or they're exploited or whatever. Right. You know, how do we change that? You know, like, how do we do it better? Right. And so I met a L.A. comic and I love comedy. I go to clubs all the time, but I was not aware of how exploited and how beat up comics are. You know, the fact that oh, yeah. comics have to some, and I didn't know this, but like sometimes not only do comics have to pay sometimes to play, pay to perform, but you know, they don't even fucking get their drinks comped, you know? And I'm like, what the fuck is that about? Right. So we did this thing. We started a colleague of mine who's a comic, you know, she was telling me all this and I said, God damn it. I said, let's do something. You know? So we ended up last year on 420, you know, April 20, 420, we ended up doing this thing over at the Comedy Chateau. We did this thing called Comedy 420. It's four comics doing 20 minutes. And, you know, we paid each comic 250 bucks. And man, you would have thought that we hung the moon. Like, A, you know, they got 20 minutes, which comics never get, right? Rarely, right? And then we were paying them $250. Like, it was unbelievable to me how grateful they were because we were just trying to show them some respect and give them a space 
to just be their best and whatever. And so the idea that, you know, when you talk about what well, you always pay your people and da, 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 like that's like in the goodwill and everything like that, it doesn't take much. It doesn't fucking take much. No, that's the bummer too, is that I feel like I've been, and I love this about myself, very much like the fucking union leader with dealing with venues to get fair deals. Like I have a reputation for being a, a tough negotiator and it's like, which I love and I also don't even think is warranted because I'm literally negotiating for fucking bare minimum, dude. Like these people don't understand when a venue has a bar, it's a just first off, like I don't accept any fucking bullshit deals if you have a bar because one, I know my crowd is drinking and I know there's going to be a lot of them and they're going to stay all night and they're going to party and you're going to make a lot of money. Me with our shows, I don't pay anybody less than a hundred bucks because even though we have, you know, other costs like design and I bring my own sound and lighting guys and half the time I'm flying my people out as well and I'm paying for people to film the shows. Like it sucks because I do have way more costs than just what a, you know, a normal standup night would be if I have four standups and that's all you're doing, you know, like then there's all the costs and all the other shit that, you know, I don't even factor into the budget. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, let me just go buy a hundred dollars worth of silly buzzer hands before a show. Cause it would be funny to do that. But then like, I just feel like we're now doing shows where we're getting two to 300 people a time rather than paying them 20 bucks. Like it's more insulting to pay them 20 bucks than to pay them nothing at that point. So I think we do owe it to them to pay them even if they're doing a three minute bit, it's like, dude, you are contributing to all these people here. And ultimately that's five tickets worth. And if I sell five tickets, I've paid for this person. The question is then it's like, how do I grow the audience and play bigger rooms? And then as we do that, I try to do like, if we make under like three grand, you know, everyone gets paid a hundred. If it's over three grand, it's 150. If it's over four, it's like 200, you know? So I keep scaling up with that. And when we do get these bigger gigs, like when you guys put on your 420 for 420, shows, you know, like we've gotten some shows where we've gotten buyouts to play specific cities where I can pay people a thousand dollars for one show. Cause that's how much the venue's offering or the charity's offering. And it's like, yo, please, I would love to pay you a thousand dollars. I want to be able to give these gigs back. It's just hard sometimes when, you know, you could sell out, like we did a show in London where I sold out a 400 seater at 25 pound tickets. We grossed 8,000 pounds, which is over 10 grand. And we were on a 70, 30 split. And somehow after all of the costs, I'm walking away with 40% before I even pay off any of my costs. And I'm like, how do I have 3,500 pounds? How am I going to walk away with like 10% of this at the end? Like I just, I don't understand where all these costs come from. And then the venues charge you up and they charge you for all these things that you didn't use or like, oh, I have to just give you 20% because I'm selling my merch that I bought and I paid my own person to run. And it's like, what the fuck is like, what is this dude? How do you survive? Like, how can you look at people and do that? That shit to me, I also just, I have no respect for and I don't understand. And then the only people that lose are the people who run the shows. Because now I don't have a venue I can go do a show at because I can bring 400 people somewhere who are going to make you 10 grand on the bar and I can't walk away with $1,000 from this thing. And it's a lot of work. Like it's a lot of work to do all this. And it's a lot of work for one person to produce it. But then also I'm hosting it and I'm running it. And I'm doing all the fun. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot. Well, and what's the, you know, you, you use the phrase goodwill. I mean, what's the goodwill worth that you're building for that brand, for that venue, right? So when you bring your goodness to a venue and 400 people show up and, and people are buying drinks, they're having a great time, that creates a halo effect 
for the venue, right? Like the venue benefits, right? Yeah. Like venue gets a reputation for being like, oh yeah, they do great shows. Well, no, you did a great show. They just happened to host you. Yeah. You know, so what's that worth? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. It's like, you guys just have the building and it's like, you can, there are great venues. Of course, there's great of everything and there's terrible versions of everything. And I love, my dream is to develop great relationships with the venues. Like I have with the bourbon room. And it's like, these guys really look out for us and they want us to create the best version of this show. They're almost more excited about it than I am, which I love, you know, that's the type of venue you want to work with. Not someone who's going to fucking squeeze you. You know, I worked at dude, fuck whatever. I don't care. I did a show at the Hollywood improv last week and that was the worst fucking show I've ever done in my life. I was so upset and so unimpressed with the way that their staff ran the venue with their tech guy. Their tech guy was the worst dude I've ever worked with in my life. When you work at a venue, your job is to help facilitate the artist's needs. I'm used to as the way I work when people come up to me as I go, hey, you're on the show tonight. Great. What do you need? How can I make that happen? And then we go to our our wonderful venue staff who we obviously work with respectfully and we say, hey, we need to do this. How can we make this happen? Here's some ideas I've had. What are your thoughts? But to get met with such resistance from such an uptight fucking cunt of a dickhead, these people were all so up themselves and like all we needed was an aux cable to plug from the sound system to the laptop to run sound. And they didn't have this, the premier flagship, you could argue, best comedy club in America, in LA, the Hollywood Improv, doesn't have an aux cable to plug audio from a computer to your sound system. Like, And then they made us seem crazy about it because we had sent this all over and like we came in and did all this shit. And I'm like, this is a venue that is so unbelievably expensive and offers zero vibe. The room sucks. The configuration is bad. The lights are bad. You could hear the AC. And you have a staff that's unwilling to help you. And this is the fucking pinnacle of comedy. No wonder this shit has, you know, there's problems all over. That's the best it gets. And they don't have to change because we give these people power like that. But if it was up to me, dude, I will never perform another fucking set at the improv in my life. Mm. Ever. Any of them. None of them. Fuck that place, dude. I was so hurt by these people. I maybe have performed in five to 600 venues in my life. Maybe there's three I don't like. Everyone else I'm totally cool with and I love to work with. And it's like, you then no wonder you get all these mean, nasty comedians because they're breeding this horrible, hateful environment. Right. And like, again, I don't know if it's clear. I don't have enough bad things to say about the Hollywood improv. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have enough bad things to say about them, man. I wish I remembered their names, but fucking hell, man. It, it was truly one of the most upsetting moments in my professional career was finally performing on that main stage after 12 years of looking at it like I was going to love it, seeing photos of Andy Kaufman on the wall. And then I come and do my act like Jack Tucker and they tell me that I need to reconsider my act and that I'm not welcome there. And it's like, man, fuck you guys, you stupid idiots that you didn't understand that I was doing a character. Like, wow, that's your fault. There's toilet paper coming out of my fucking foot. Obviously, I'm joking. Right. <laughs> you know, right, like, right, right, right. I know that wasn't the thing. And this was a different point. But like, it's the larger symptom of like, this is why we can't survive because you've no, got no, gatekeeping but- bullshit like this that just kills any growth. Right. Well, I mean, remember, the original question was, you know, what's it like running a business, right? Like, talk about the good, bad and the ugly. Talk about what you're learning. This is what it's like. And the reality is running a business is fucking hard in the best of circumstances, let alone when you don't have vendors, yeah. partners, 
suppliers, you know, I'm using business jargon, right? Suppliers, vendors, uh, strategic, whatever. In this context, the comedy club is a supplier, is a strategic partner, is a vendor. And, you know, if you don't have a supply chain, so to speak, I'm going to just double down on the business jargon. You know, if you don't have a supply chain that is functioning and doing their parts and respecting the other links in the value chain and blah, 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 you know, the product's going to suffer on some level might be invisible to your yeah. audience, but it's, you know, it's like we said, it's hard enough in the best of circumstances. Why are we making it harder and show some fucking respect to yeah. your colleagues, you know? Dude, it's also just, it's not hard to be nice. It's oh, really it so easy. No, it isn't. It is. And again, it's like, if we were coming in and asking for the world, I would understand that, you know, not everything can be completed all the time, but I'm like, Hey, I showed up two hours early to the show because I just wanted to plug in a, a cable and I wanted to bring you my own microphone so that I could put my microphone in my mouth and hit stuff around and not break your equipment. That's all I wanted to do. And then we went and bought a cable because theirs wasn't working. And, you know, it's just like going back again to like doubling down on business on like the business terms of it all. It's like you're just getting in the way of the product for no reason. And then you're basically denying the market of things that we have that people want. And then you kill your brand because it's not that good because you guys aren't growing. Mm-hmm. And you're getting complacent and it's stale and you're not open to change. And then it's hard because one of the, maybe the hardest parts I run into is advocating for myself in a way that doesn't have consequences because I have to wear the producer's hat and the performer's hat. And while I trust and always listen, I love my manager and I, I love my agents too, where they're like, let us advocate for you. I also know when it comes to the creative with a show and a venue, nobody will advocate for myself better than me. Right, right. I don't believe anybody cares as much about me as I do. And nobody knows the show as well as I do. Right. And so then I have to ride this line of like, I have to be the smiley performer who's like, hey, everything's fine. But also as the producer, I'm like, I need to check my motherfucking sound. And I better make sure I know the levels of all the wedges that it's coming out of and all the areas it's coming out of. And that light cue is, is faster because if that's a second off that way, the joke is ruined. And then we've lost the next six setups. And it's not that important to you. And from the, you know, the naked eye, it doesn't look like it's that big of a deal. But I promise you, from having done the show all these times, it is that big of a deal. And it's like, those are the split differences you know, that make it different. And I would love to shout out one venue that I work with in particular is the venue in London called Pleasance. And specifically, Ryan Taylor is the comedy programmer there. First off, we're birthday buddies. And we have the same birthday. So we have that kindred spirit of the April 25th boys. <laughs> but they have never said no to us. It's always, how can we make this happen? You guys want fire? Great. Here's what we need from you. I need a risk assessment. I need insurance. I need footage of this. And I need a demonstration. And I go, great. Here's everything you need. Let's Here are our availabilities. I've already spoken to him. Here's his availabilities for the next three weeks. Which of these dates works so we can come run by and do this so we can get Westminster to come and clear this ahead of time? You know, we would like to climb up the rigs of the stage. How do we do that? Well, let's bolt in some extra secure, like, you know, piping at the bottom to make sure that this can be more load bearing and you could take on full weight. Awesome. You know, it's not hard. Yeah. It's like people agree to do a job and then they get upset when you ask them to do their job. And it's again, it's that way of like you then also have to be direct and hold your ground without being a dick. Yeah. And that's one that I struggle with because I just get passionate about it. And when I see people like this improv guy fucking me around being like, mm, I don't think this is possible. I'm like, I would be willing to put a gun to my mouth and load it and pull the trigger if it wasn't possible to put an auxiliary headphone jack 
from my laptop into your set. Like, right. you know, it's these yeah. types of things. Yeah. Right? I think I could go in circles on this. For well, no, it's but just, it, it's I, hard. You know, it's really hard. I mean, yes. And there's a couple things you're hitting on there. I mean, one is, I mean, well, you know, on a certain level, right? I mean, you know, comedy is supposed to be a yes and play, right? Or improv, you know, so it's like, yeah. like, like, like a little customer service, please. Yes and, yes and. But yes, I mean, the fact that you are having to wear all these hats yourself, I mean, you know, it is hard for you to play good cop, bad cop. Sometimes like you need that bad cop, right? If you want to be the good cop, you need the bad cop. If you want to be the bad cop, it's sort of hard to be the good cop sometimes, right? And it sounds like you do a really good job of navigating that. And also in part because the majority of your venues are, you know, wonderful to work with, but there's always a fuck, yeah. you know, always an asshole somewhere. And usually it's the one that thinks that they have the right to be an asshole. So here we are. Well, I tell you who's not an asshole as far as I'm concerned. It's uh. Zach Zucker. Zach Zucker is a fucking comedy hey. genius. Comedy genius. Oh and by God. the way, a, from what I can tell, a very nice human being, a very kind human being. I'm just uh, stoked, man. I'm stoked for you. I'm stoked for your success. I'm stoked for everything you're doing. I just want to see it explode. I know. I just believe it's only a matter of time before these problems and these challenges, these growing pains go away. And you're so big and successful that you'll forget us little people. But I just... Oh my God, as if, dude. As <laughs> if. And I'm just so excited for you, man. I mean, you're an inspiration to me. I always, you know, as I said earlier, artists are my favorite people, let alone artists that make me laugh and make me feel good. And coming to Stamptown and seeing you and the crew do what you do just made me, uh, inspired me and just gave me one of the greatest nights of my year. And, and I mean that sincerely. And I want to come back and see it again. What is the schedule moving forward? What's the... So that's what we're trying to figure out. So currently, you know, October was kind of like, I had like a really intense three months of touring. So this is kind of my like, quote unquote, chill period. And I'm, you know, trying to also just like get people to maybe give us some money to make something. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so while that's all happening, my best friend Vigo, who won Britain's Got Talent, we're going to go perform some NBA halftime shows together at the end of this month. Nice. And then I'm going on tour with David Cross, who has become a supporter and a good friend and yeah. just like really a love him. I can't say enough nice things about him, man. He's yeah. so incredible and he's been very kind to me every step of the way. And he asked me to open for him for a few nights. So we're going to do three nights on the road on the West Coast. Nice. And then I go back over to New York and we do a stamp town out there, maybe a Jack Tucker solo show because I'm eventually doing a two month off Broadway run of my solo show with that character next year, the Soho Playhouse. That's <laughs> February 29 to April 20, second mention of 420. Epic, <laughs> epic weed <laughs> Yeah, baby. And then after New York, what I'm trying to figure out now for November is I'm going to Australia to do some shows in Sydney and Melbourne. I just got to figure out what exactly are my dates and where am I doing the shows. And then for LA, I have a few dates. I'm seeing some venues like a, uh, Bourbon, I just didn't reach out to them in time. So I have some late shows, but I just don't know if people are going to come to a 10 o'clock show on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. Like I would, but you know, I don't know if everybody else will. I'll come. I'll be there. Fuck yeah. I mean, I'll do it. And then I was going to go to Australia and then I come back end of November. I have like a little mini tour with this podcast. These guys love it or leave it. John Lovett's podcast. Mm -hmm. They're really nice and kind. And I asked me to go do some dates with them, which I would love to do. And then I'm kind of up in the air again. I just want to, you know, I will perform. If it was up to me, I'd perform every night if I knew people would come. It's just, yeah, it's just who's all here. And I think not unfortunately, it's like fortunately because we're like close. I think a lot of these next moves of doing shows is like, okay, are these people that we need to come see it available? 
and it's not just to get these people to see it, but it's like, we do want these people to see it so we can, you know, do something with it. But, you know, regardless, I always say like, you know, I'm never going to stop doing this. So, you know, we always joke, like, (laughs) if you're not down to ride, then like, you can get the fuck out the club. Like, we're just having a blast. Like, I want everyone's welcome here. All we want to do is make stuff whenever we can. And we're passionate and we're blunt and we're like sure of what we want to make and what we want to do. And, you know, we're professionally always looking for everybody who can help us make that happen and people who share the same ethos with us. And then on just a personal human level, you know, we want to make everyone happy and have people laugh and have a good time. And yeah, hopefully just like, you know, just give people a night that they can remember and be like, oh my God, I like, I can't even begin to tell you about what happened last night. But like our dream show is like, you know, the funniest thing in the world happens. And then also everyone gets laid and everyone wins the lottery. Like that's my dream (laughs) night, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I'm telling you, Stamptown, when you go to Stamptown, you're guaranteed to laugh, to get laid and win the lottery. And get rich. You're going to laugh. You're going to get laid. You're going to get money. (laughs) I mean, sign me up. I would go to that show. You're telling me that's what I want to be at. Sold out every night. Sold out every night. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. Zach Tucker, you're the best, man. And I just am so so grateful for you and everything you're doing. And I look forward to being able to come and partake in the joy that you bring again at some point in the future. And please don't be a stranger. Please come back, you know, and uh, you're welcome anytime. Uh, Anytime you want. Anytime you want, I promise I can speak about more focused things. I hope I gave you anything that was usable at all. I'm always like, Jesus, did I just like shit out of my mouth for an hour and 40 minutes? Like, is any of this funny or usable or interesting? But I will do what my manager tells me and just say, hey, thanks for having me. Look at you. You know what you know what they call that? Applied learning. You listen, you apply what you hear, and then you execute. Your manager would be so proud. Zach, you're the best. Thanks so much for coming through. You have a beautiful day. What's the rest of your afternoon look like? What are you going to make today, Zach? Oh, so, you know, in 20 minutes, I'm going to therapy to fix my brain, keep myself sharp, <laughs> fix those problems, and get, you know, have them noodle around in there so I can function for another week. Nice. And then I got a little commercial audition just moments ago or about an hour ago. So I'll take a look at that. And then I was going to hit a dance class at five o'clock and just keep, you know, pushing myself and getting out of my comfort zone. And it would be taking a new fundamentals class with a teacher I haven't taken before. So, you know, always a perfect opportunity to go make a fool of yourself in front of a bunch of talented, hot, swaggy, sexy individuals. So it's a pole dancing class. Is that what you're doing? You're, you're learning pole dancing? This one is not a pole dancing class. This one's just like a fundamentals, like grooves and kind of like basics hip hop class. Got it. But I've taken pole, I've taken heels, I've taken some jazz, some fusion or some like jazz funk fusion. But I'm just trying to get everything. I'm taking ballet. Like I'm, I bought some tap shoes. I'm going I, for it. I love it. Well, I want to see you on the pole. I'll come make it rain. I'll just be like, yes, yeah, please. <laughs> Look, the bourbon room has poles and you know that I'm slowly but surely working my way up to it. I just have to work through this like chronic problem I have, which is a complete lack of strength and flexibility in my hips and core. But until I once <laughs> I work ball. that out. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. And, and, a, and a threshold for pain for holding my body weight up. So once I learn all of that. Yeah. And also get way stronger. You better <laughs> You're on it. You'll pole. be all over it. <laughs> I'm on. I'm on. What are you doing for the rest of the day? 
Oh, uh, what am I doing? So Wednesday is my sort of production day. I've done, you know, obviously we've chatted. I chatted with a, another artist earlier. So today I'll sort of get, you know, focused on some of the intros and work on some of that stuff. Nice. I also have some work from yesterday that didn't get done. We're producing a hey, uh, hip hop song. So the little, maybe too much information. I don't know if you're familiar with DesignerCon, but DesignerCon is the world's largest convention of art toys, designer toys, and, you know, like pop culture memorabilia and stuff. And so we, you would dig it. I mean, I think you would. It's in Anaheim every year. It's been going on for about 18, 19 years. My buddy produces it and we used to produce it together. But I'm taking a look at this right now. Yeah, it's really cool. Designer Con. And so we have a booth there every year. And, you know, kind of what's fun for people that like to collect these art toys and designer toys and vinyl toys and, you know, whatever brands like kid robot and, you know, whatever. But, um, so there's all these exclusive drops, right? So like an artist will design a toy and they'll make a hundred of them and you drop them there and they're collector's items and stuff. Right. So, so this year we were trying to decide what we wanted to drop. And so for all kinds of reasons, I won't bore you with, we decided to actually, rather than dropping a toy or something, you know, 3d, we would drop a song, music, we would drop music. And so a couple of my colleagues are big hip hop heads, born and raised, Angelino. And so what we realized was that there really isn't a holiday hip hop song that celebrates the holidays in LA. And so we're producing this track, working with some OG LA MCs that I won't mention because I want to, you know, the big reveal and whatnot. So anyway, so it's very exciting. Oh, I can't wait to talk to you about it. The producer, yeah, my boy Dan Ubik sent me the track over with the beats yesterday and they sound amazing. And so I have some work to do on that today. So anyway, long answer to a short question, but uh, we're lucky people, you and me, Zach, we get to make art. That's the truth right there. Oh, well, I can't wait to keep making some art together. Uh, I look forward to it, my friend. But, you know, in the meantime, go get your head straight. Go get that uh, commercial audition. <laughs> go be you and uh, enjoy your best life, my friend. Thanks for coming through. Uh, dude, you rock. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll chat soon. And uh, I'm sure we'll hang out outside of this in L.A. before the next show anyways. Count on it. All right, my friend. We'll talk. Peace. See ya. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.